You are listening to the Enormo cast. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll say, you really should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. I was afraid end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes. And don't forget our friends at Defiant Bean Roasters. Defiantbean.com. Enter normal at checkout for a discount on great coffee. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kaluse. It is April 14th, about 9 o'clock Mountain Standard Time, and this is episode 55 of the Enormacast, a conversation with legend, climber, and guidebook author Eric Bjornstadt. But before I tell you about my conversation with Eric, which uh, definitely needs a little introduction, I'd like to remind everybody that Next week, April 25th, I'm going to be doing a live Enormacast here in Carbondale, hosted by the Five Point Film Festival at 10 o'clock on Friday morning uh, at Bonfire Coffee downtown. And I'm also going to be MC on Friday night at the Five Point Film Festival. If you want more information about the film festival and about coming to Carbondale for that, go to fivepointfilm.org. That's the number, fivepointfilm.org. If you're in town, stop by the bonfire at 10 a.m. I'll be talking to some climbers, including my friend Jonathan Thiesinga, who will be returning for uh, antics and talking about his trip to the Sudan to climb there in the middle of what was actually a heating up revolution. That's his thing, though. That's what he likes to do. Got some other guests on the line. We'll see how that pans out. Come by for some surprises, have some coffee, some bonfire. And uh, enjoy the morning with the Enormacast. When I started the Enormacast, one of the ideas that I had was that I would end up archiving some of the great climbers, some of the older climbers that uh, won't be here forever. And uh, <clears throat> with that in mind, I caught up with Eric Bjornstadt in a care facility in Moab, Utah. Listener Paul Booker got in touch with me and, uh, and let me know how much fun he had had talking to Eric on his visits to the care center. And I uh, thought I might like to come down and have a chat with him. So I want to thank Paul for helping me facilitate this. So we went over there and uh, Eric took a fall a little while ago and is now pretty much bedridden, can get out of bed and walk a little bit, but uh, is pretty much bedridden. And so we, I went into his room and hooked up the mics and we had a nice chat. You may know Eric from uh, the cover of your guidebooks for the Southeast Utah area. Moab area. He's written the original Desert Rock, which is quite the Bible of the climbing area down there. And then the subsequent volumes about climbing towers and Wall Street and various other things down there. So as we'll come to find out in his 60-year career, he crossed the country quite a few times. In some ways, Eric was the prototype dirtbag, along with Fred Becky, just trying to string together whatever money he could to make sure that he had enough time to climb. For me, it was an honor to sit down with the man and I hope you enjoy it too. A conversation with Eric Bjornstad. 
big doesn't necessarily equal difficulty, of course. No. But they're big and difficult. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they always, the Fisher Towers always captured my imagination just because of the size. And, yeah. and also, you know, like when you see the Titan, you know, from way out by the road, it's so dominating yeah. of the skyline. And, yeah. You know, Castleton is is big and it's cool but it's it doesn't like it's not so massive you know yeah well, it's totally different rock and that has a different image because of that too yeah exactly i, I read a, a bunch of stuff about your history just in sort of preparation for this just to talk into you were you born in bishop or is that just where you grew up it's where i grew up okay and can you yeah. tell me a little bit of, i mean this must have been in, in what the 40s well i was born in 34 okay and uh my father's a boiler maker, pipe fitter, moved around a lot wherever the jobs went. So, if the, you know, if that's how we ended up in Bishop, because mm-hmm. they were building the, the the power dam in Owens Gorge. Oh, sure. And um, it was before any climbs had been done anywhere near there. Mm-hmm. Of course, now it's you know, pretty well known. But, um, yeah, I like Bishop because of... As a teenager, and I did a lot of fishing, a lot of hunting. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't into climbing until a little bit later. Well, I mean, I'm trying. Bishop isn't a very big town now, but I can't imagine. It well, must it have just a, been a little stop on the road. Yeah. Yeah, when I lived there, it was only very small. And my father, working for the, the L.A. Water and, and Power, I lived 12 miles north of the town in Round Valley. Okay. And um, it was a great place. I learned to drive at an early age because I had to drive my own car to, to high school. Yeah, I have good memories of Bishop, but I'm sure it's really changed. Well, I mean, I I haven't been there in a few years, but it's a little more touristy. But really, honestly, I, it still feels like kind of out of the way place, and and uh, you know, in a kind of a windswept desert. So it's hard to believe people like T.M. Herbert and some some of my old friends have found out Bishop. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, yeah, it's a good, good climber. When I lived I there, there were no climbers. Yeah. Yeah, there were no spelunkers, no climbers. So, they, yeah, because, I mean, it's right near town. It's primarily bouldering and sport climbing, which weren't even really no. things people did. You also, you just mentioned spelunking. You got, I, I read that you got into caving first was one of the first things you did that was sort of technical. Yeah, I, I lived in Berkeley. Okay. And roomed with Grover Krantz, who was a... PhD student in physical anthropology and I roomed with him for a while his claim to fame is he married Evelyn Einstein Albert Einstein's granddaughter <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome and anyway they're both deceased <laughs> but anyway I, I lived with Grover for a while and um, went on a few spelunking jaunts with him uh-huh. and that's where I heard about Samuel Cave and he had attempted Samuel and you know it's just this huge 90-foot drop-off, you come over to the lip, and then it expands like that, 90 feet to the bottom. And it's a pretty awesome place. And, um, yeah, that was the beginning of my climbing, is getting involved in caving. Going down and having to ascend back out and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Um, sort of the technical end of that. And this yeah. was, how old were you about at this point? Oh, 19. 19 or 20? Yeah, yeah. And living in Berkeley? Yeah. So, and this would have been then adding it on and early 50s early 50s in berkeley kind of pre-hippie berkeley <laughs> yeah yeah i knew fort ferlinghetti and kerouac and uh-huh I used to go to upper grant street and party with them and 
back before they were infamous. Oh, yeah? Is that right? <laughs> the early beatniks. Yeah. So yeah. tell me how then you progressed. Uh, wh when did you start climbing and what did that look like? Do you remember Pretty the... much Samwell Cave, getting yeah. stuck in Samwell and mm -hmm. getting rescued in Samwell. And, and the guy that, that I was climbing with, Gerard, he got married two weeks later to a girl he'd never met. <laughs> what do you mean? That's it was such a traumatic experience being caught in that cave. Oh yeah, that just changed his life totally, and it changed mine. I went into climbing. Uh huh. You know, he he went the opposite direction and became domesticated. <laughs> right. So let, let let me go back. So there was an emergency. You guys got got stuck down there. Yeah, we had to be rescued. Okay. Front page of the San Francisco, San Francisco Chronicle. Oh wow. <laughs> So in that, I mean, you you just joked about one guy said, I'm done, and, and you said, what, I'm climbing above ground from now on? No, he just gave up climbing, period. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about you? Well, I, I went the opposite way. I became more interested in people who climbed and mm -hmm. uh, sought out climbers. And So did you then start climbing above ground in California, or was yeah, there the late move? late fifties in California. No. And what did that look like? Do you remember where you were or what you were no, doing? No, just didn't keep records in those days. And oh yeah, Ed Turn Cooper and up. Fred Becky were my my idols then. Right. So they they were my early climbing genre. Uh huh. It wasn't it wasn't well climbing wasn't well known then. Spelunking a little bit more, but really, but technical climbing wasn't. You know, it, it was. Designated to Yosemite and mm -hmm. Robbins and Chenard and right. You know. So why did you idolize guys like Becky and Ed Cooper in the beginning? Well, because they had free time. Oh, <laughs> everybody else had to work. What were you but, doing for work at the time? I ran coffee houses. Oh, okay. But Fred and yeah, Becky and they they didn't have to work. <laughs> they just. They, I mean, Fred Becky's been famous for that forever. Yeah. But, Figuring out how not to work and only yeah. to climb. So we latched on to one another because I didn't have to work either. Oh, right on. You know, if I wanted to go to Alaska, I just hired my best help to watch the coffee house and right. took off. And took off. Yeah. Yeah. So the coffee house is in Berkeley? Yeah. No, I didn't have any in Berkeley. Seattle and Tacoma and just around the country. Mm -hmm. It had a lot to do in the early days where my father had his work. So it gave me enough money to not have to work. Right, right. Yeah. So... Most people, I think, associate you with climbing here in the desert. I mean, that's your your your, your names on the books um, that you produce, which we'll talk about in just a second. But I was looking at your history and, and didn't realize that you had spent time as this mountaineer in Seattle and then also climbing in Alaska and, and some of the other greater ranges. So. Yeah, I drove the Alcan Highway twice uh -huh. before it was paved. <laughs> okay. So, it was dirt. And this Eight, is... 2,600 uh, miles, I think it is, from Seattle to Anchorage. Uh-huh. What were you guys driving? Oh, old junkers. Old junkers. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I don't remember. I, I went through cars like like women. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, uh, so you spent several years living up in Seattle, also working for the, the Mountain Rescue Team. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I was a member of the Seattle Mountain Rescue for eight years. Mm -hmm. And so, is you know, in terms of learning your skills and that sort of thing, is that kind of the Cascades, the place where you you sort of got your skills together? The Cascades, so much as Canada. Oh, okay. They did many trips into Squamish. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, that's where Fred Becky and 
Ed Cooper interested in. Mm-hmm. And so when they were looking for climbing partners, which is always during the week, right? Well, I would join them in going to Canada. Squamish Chief was one of my favorite. Yeah. How long has it been since you you climbed up at Squamish? Oh, uh, a while. Yeah. <laughs> Multiple decades, yeah. maybe. Yeah. The good old days. Yeah. So, can we get a little philosophical for a second? When you were learning uh, to climb, and can, w- oh, go ahead. I can say the alphabet backwards: Z, Y, X, W, V, U, T, S. Is that what you mean? <laughs> philosophical. <laughs> what I mean is, is what did you? Uh, what do you think brought you to climbing? What was it? Well, it was the spelunking. Uh-huh. It was Grover Krantz and mm-hmm. getting stuck in the cave and being right. interested in learning more about about climbing from that. I guess what I mean is more, what do you think drew you to it? What do you, what um, was it about climbing that? No, it was just esoteric. In those days, you didn't you didn't meet climbers. The only climbers known were Robbins and Chouinard. And, right. But other than that, climbing was a pretty esoteric endeavor in those days. Uh-huh. And that's what you thought it was different, and that's one of the draws of it? Well, you don't think of it in terms of being different. That, that's certainly one of the draws. But, mm-hmm. you know, you know, and I enjoyed the isolation, the, the wilderness aspect of it. Back in those days, it, if you met other climbers, you went the other direction. Right. You know, now if you meet other climbers, oh, hi, my, my name's such and such. What are you doing today? Uh-huh. You know, it's totally different. It's a big social scene now. Certainly. Back yeah. in those days, it wasn't. It was back in those days. You climbed to get away from people, mm-hmm. and it didn't take long into the '60s where you climbed to be with people. Right. You know, especially along Castles and Tower, but especially along Potash Road. And, right. You know. Well, in Yosemite too. I mean, that became quite a, a well, famous that, sort that of social the, scene. Yeah, that became the the, the mecca of it. Mm-hmm. Um, did you spend much time in Yosemite back in those days? I didn't. Uh, no? There were too many people there. Too many people, right. <laughs> yeah, well, they weren't always climbers, but there were right. too many people, period. I mean, that's kind of funny because, you know, I can only imagine that, com- you know, what, what I would consider crowded was was nothing compared to what you guys were yeah. looking at. I mean, you know, if you go to Yosemite now, you can't even find a place to camp. Right, yeah. And, but yeah. to think you guys thought there was too many people there in nineteen in the nineteen sixties is is pretty wild. Yeah. So, so how did you end up uh, coming down here to Moab again? I think because of the books you wrote, you know, most well, people think about with, you as this desert climber. Yeah, I came here with Becky, you mm-hmm. know, interested in desert towers. Right. Yeah. What were some yeah. of the early things you guys did down here? Well, mostly in Monument Valley, but I always wanted to do Valley of the Gods. And Fred would drive past them on the way to Monument Valley. Mm-hmm. And Fred was never interested in Valley of the Gods. He said, thought there wasn't anything worth doing over there. Mm-hmm. So I did the first climb ever done in the Valley of the Gods. And then, and subsequently it became a popular place. Right. But, um, yeah, it just, that represents the isolation. Mm-hmm. You know, not, not, not being where a lot of, where the crowds were. Right. I can imagine, you know, Valley of the Gods has some reputation, but I bet you there's not very many people climbing there even still, you know? Yeah, still pretty isolated, pretty esoteric. A little bit out of the way compared to, say, but climbing up here. The road's improved. You don't need to need, you don't have to have four-wheel drive anymore mm-hmm. to get there. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's totally different. Everything's bolted. Everything's protected. Right. So it's 
it's changed a lot and it's become a lot easy for climbers to access. Right, right. Compared with back in the 60s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when you came, when you started climbing here in Moab, were you still living out of Seattle or when were you... Uh, yeah, I was in Seattle. Okay, so you're coming down here to do trips with Fred yeah, and, yeah. and the other folks. Yeah, we went to the Wind Rivers and we, you know, Fred and I would just take off and the desert became one of our favorites because there was nobody here. Right. I mean, really nobody around right. out in those days. Yeah. And so you were climbing down in, the, in Monument Valley, down on the Navajo lands and that sort of thing? And again, there were no, no restrictions in those right. days. Because there was no, I mean, nobody yeah. had thought yeah. of restricting it. Yeah, probably, well, you yeah. know, 1970, I think, when they had an accident, which brought a lot of attention. Yeah. I think it was Shiprock that they... Yeah, I, th- I want to say that's what happened a lot of attention to well. Monument Valley. Right. Yeah. And then they started... But before that, there it. were no restrictions. Yeah, the Navajo didn't want attention. They didn't know how to climb, and that was embarrassing to them. Right. <laughs> to, yep. Maybe they felt, too, like it was just another example of outside people coming in and, sure. and, and you know, using their resources for, for yeah. whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, I can understand that they would finally be... Poverty-stricken to begin with. They didn't right. Again, we're, I'm just trying to kind of connect uh, all these different parts of what is an amazingly long and sort of active life. So I see you coming down from Seattle. Um, you're still running coffee houses. And then, you know, one of the big things I've, I've always been curious about, and, and I think a lot of people associate, is that you were involved in the filming of the Iger Sanction and, and a bunch of the climbing scenes down here as well as on the totem pole. Was that about the mid-70s? Yeah. Must have been. Yeah. I think they made that film in like seventy four, seventy five, yeah. if I recall. Yeah. Yeah. So, how did you get involved? I think you made a couple films, or were working with some. Well, some I worked stunt. on. I worked on a lot of films, but okay. they, they just were not known. Oh right, right. Some of them just went by the yeah. wayside, but it's mostly that I knew the area and they needed a guide. Uh huh. And if you climbed and were a guide, that doubled their their interest. Right. So. So. And I, my money was coming into the coffee house, which is pretty lean. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was because I was absent all the time. Sure. You know, <laughs> yeah, paying climb, someone else climb. to do the work, yeah. Sure. I, I often, I was, I was well known for hiring a waitress that had worked for me for two weeks. Right. <laughs> and if I wanted to go to Canada, I just turned it all over to her and... <laughs> Said good luck and yeah. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Got ripped off a lot and didn't get ripped off a lot, but at the same time, but, you know, but it gave me a... Free, free time that I wouldn't otherwise have had working at a regular job. Right, yeah. Um, sort of the price of doing business in the mountains, I guess. Yeah. Getting ripped off every once in a while <laughs> by somebody. Well, the reason yeah. I want to bring up the Iger sanction is because at the beginning of this show um, that I put out, I have a little intro section that, that kind of pulls a quote from it. So it's it's been sort of a, a part of this show since I started it a couple of years ago. One of the things that's interesting is you guys did an ascent of the totem pole uh, within doing that movie. Mm-hmm. Had you climbed it before at that point? No, we made the fifth ascent. The fifth ascent, and then by contract with the the Navajos, the the route was taken down. Is that right? The route was never really established. I mean, it, okay, it had been climbed a few times before, but. Um, yeah, I think they paid forty thousand dollars to the Navajo, right, to be able to do the totem pole. Mm-hmm. And of course, Hollywood has all the money. They, you know, sure, there's nothing to them. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it was money that got permission for. And the totem pole was not really sacred. Mm-hmm. Shiprock was right, uh, Spider Rock, but, but 
The totem pole is not really on the Navajo list of sacred desert entities. Yeah. You know. Right. So we're lucky in that respect. Mm-hmm. Since it seems to be about the tallest, thinnest tower in the world. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, it's every climber's, yeah. every no. desert climber's dream to pull that one off. Yeah, about eighteen feet thick in the middle and about four hundred feet high. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, in a great place. No, no people. <laughs> right. No people at all. Yeah. So in that movie, you guys were doing a lot of the climbing on the on the film, in terms of. I mean, I, I've watched the movie a whole bunch of times. I don't know if you've watched it many times or remembered it all, but, um, you know, they do a lot of cutaways to different people climbing. Um, a lot of it was done in Monument Valley, but over towards Goulding. Yeah. Not, not really in Totem Pole area. Yeah, yeah. You can If you're a climber, you can tell. Yeah. You know, obviously you can say, wait a minute, that's nowhere near the Totem Pole. Right. But, but uh, they, they filmed it in together and, and, and stuck it together. Yeah, my coolers responsible for that uh-huh and i understand that clint eastwood actually did a bunch of the climbing or did yeah. a fair few of the stunts he was pretty yeah, pretty yes. active about it mm-hmm. so yeah he's very physically adept and he, he enjoyed being there and uh-huh he did some of the stunt work himself right pretty daring he went hand over hand across over the totem pole and oh yeah the one scene and and there wasn't anything between he and several hundred feet under him except the uh, the safety line right and you know if you're not a climber you don't know how much to trust that safety line sure <laughs> well they you know I don't even think they would let their stars do those sorts of things anymore you know in Probably terms not. of insurance and you know yeah. not wanting to to have the film come to an end when when their main character plummeted or whatever but so were you on uh, on the unit in the desert only or did you end up going over to Europe with them no just in the desert mm-hmm they had already filmed in Europe. Oh, okay. The desert was the last that they filmed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, of course, it's funny because it always seems like they go in order, but yeah, of but course they don't. They don't. No. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> awesome. They, they follow the weather sometimes. And yeah. So when did you start spending all your time in Moab? Well, I never spent all my time here. This is just a home base. Right. You know. Well, in terms of living but, here is what I'm getting at. Oh, 1960 maybe. Mm-hmm. Fifty-nine, sixty. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's where Moab became home. Oh wow, that was a long time ago. <laughs> what did it? What was yeah, it, it like? A long time. It's a long time. <laughs> what was it like in nineteen sixty? I mean, what was the well, town there, like? There are a few fishermen. Okay. But hunting and fishing is what it was known for. Uh huh. I mean, people didn't even know how to spell climbing those days. Sure, sure. <laughs> There's yeah. a B in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, and it was what essentially the economy was what mining, I suppose. Yeah, still? it was the end of the uranium days. Did you yeah. did you ever get involved with that in yeah. terms of the work that you did? Only using their trails that they blazed. Yeah, I know. That's what yeah. I always tell climbers. Yeah, is that none of these things would be none of these roads we use would be here without the mining. Yeah, and they, and they you know became friends with with the miners because they they knew the area and they would take me out to areas or places that. Other people didn't know about mm-hmm. exploring the desert. You know, I'd get down trails that were unknown to the general public. Sure. So you moved from uh, a basically really wet, you know, sort of temperate climate down down to the desert. What what drew you to Moab? Just the no people. Yeah, the no people and being the center. If you wanted to climb something on the desert, you you struck out from Moab. Yeah, it wasn't the people here. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, Moab was 
was um, the base from which you you went out to climbs in all directions. Mm-hmm. You know, from Moab, you can go any direction and find climbing, even towards the south. So that was a great appeal to somebody that wanted to get away from people. What were you doing for a living then, once you were coffee down Coffee houses. Moab? Still coffee houses here? Or just still running them from a distance up in from, Seattle? From a distance, absentee owner for many years. Yeah, I had many coffee houses. I think I had seven coffee houses altogether, but I spent almost no time at them. They were just a matter of going in and getting money to buy coffee or buy rub to go to the next climb. Uh-huh. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, I was an absentee owner. <laughs> so in a lot of ways, you did find the dream in terms of, of figuring out a way to climb as much as you could and, and make just mm-hmm. enough money. Sure. Mm-hmm. Fred Becky and Ed Cooper had found it, and I found it in my way. So as you as you were climbing up through the time in Moab, if we skip ahead a little bit, when did you sort of decide that it was time to write these guidebooks? They came to Fred and wanted him to write the guidebook. And he felt that I knew the area a lot better than he did because I lived here mm-hmm. <laughs> and had, you know, climbed on the desert as much as he had at that time. Sure. And um, so it was pretty much the influence from Fred Becky that, that I wrote the guides. Uh-huh. Well, the Desert Rock, the original one, is... You know, now it's sort of a revered collector's item in terms of of, uh, of guidebooks because mm-hmm. obviously it's way out of print. And you know, I have one that's considered my very personal relic. Um, actually, if I'd have thought ahead, I'd, I'd have brought it down to have you sign it, and I probably will come back actually yeah. in the next couple of weeks and have you have have you sign it. But just in my climbing, I, I bought that book um, right when it came out, but I had only been climbing for about a year the desert rock and it basically changed me as a climber like i became a desert climber because of this book that you wrote yeah, the, the blue enticed, path one it enticed a lot of people to come to this area they hadn't heard of before yeah i bet i bet mm-hmm. it, i actually want to come back to that but the interesting thing is that i started climbing right when sport climbing was kind of being invented in the u.s and i just i, I always look back and it's it's interesting that while a whole bunch of people I started climbing with went that direction, at least for the first 10 years of my climbing life, I, I went the other way. They continue to divide. Yeah, exactly. So uh, It becomes an esoteric thing to do, and mm-hmm. people go off on all kinds of different tangents of climbing. Sure. Everything from just pru-seeking right, <laughs> to actually doing um, rope climbs. Of, mm-hmm. You know, A lot of people are not interested in anything other than just getting to... Getting up a rope, you know, right. they don't care if they they reach a summit or not. You know, if I didn't reach the summit, I never considered it a climb. Uh, and and now it's now you talk to the majority of people don't consider it a climb if they if they um, have gone up one pitch. That's that's a climb. It's um, much more of a totally change something you can just do in the afternoon. You know, like yeah. going golfing or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. although you know, like you just said, there's all these different paths. I think plenty of people still. Are, are of that vein of, of climbing to the top and, mm-hmm. and having those adventures. Yeah, the climbing, most climbers now are just as satisfied stepping off the bumper, their bumper to play. <laughs> right, that's, well, Potash Road is the perfect example of that. Right. Well, you just mentioned something that I'm curious about in terms of all guidebook authors but yourself. You know, you just said, well, I think that book enticed a lot of people to come here. And so as a person who came here because of the isolation, you know, 
was there any any conflict in your mind about writing the guidebook and what the effects might be, or do you think it's mostly been positive? No, I'm just purely interested in getting the money to climb a few more days. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and um, and that was what Fred Becky and Ed Cooper were both interested in a guide, mm-hmm. but they didn't have the time there. Right. You know. Guidebook authorship isn't always seen as such a great money maker, though. I mean, in modern no, times, anyway. Yeah, you don't. Don't make a lot of money off of it. <laughs> no. I mean, compared to the amount of work that yeah. you have to put For into For me, it. it was free time. Totally right. free time. Sure. I didn't make enough money to drive to L.A. or, you know, it was the free time that it gave me. And for most people now, it's not the free time. It's access. People get involved in climbing to, because it's a social thing. You know, they want to meet other climbers. Sure. You know, I got involved in climbing to get away from other climbers. Kind of the way it went. Going back to that guidebook, it's, it's got a lot of history you know, it was sort of a philosophy where you you definitely wanted to also tell the history of the area. Yeah. Um, did that just seem like what you ought to do, or was that a something well, that you I was, philosophically? What I was interested in. Yeah, I was interested in the remote areas that few people had ever been to. Sure. You know, not so much to publicize them, but just because they interested me, mm-hmm. because they were so isolated and so right. remote. But, um, yeah, it was back in the days when climbing was... He had hemp ropes, and mm-hmm. climbing was a suicide thing. <laughs> oh, sure. Sure, it was much more risky yeah. than it is now. Yeah. But it's, that's, that was the challenge. That right. was the interest. Not not climbing for the social scene, but climbing because of the remoteness and mm-hmm. because you didn't meet other climbers. It wasn't for everyone, but that's what I chose, and Fred Becky and Ed Cooper were choosing mm-hmm. at the mm-hmm. time. Did you ever meet Ed Cooper? No, I didn't. Hmm. No, I only know the name. He's still around. <laughs> oh, yeah? Where does he live? Northern California. Uh huh. He's pretty friendly. You ought to give him a call. I should actually. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I know the name, and and uh, that's about it, really. Yeah. Well, at the time, Ed was a pretty private person. At at the time, he had actually done more climbs in the desert than Fred Becky. But um, Ed, Ed Ed was a very private person. Uh huh. Wasn't interested in socializing with sure. people, and and so he consequently his name didn't become well known. Right. Like, uh, like some of the names. Well, I think too. I mean, has he continued to climb his whole life? Say it again. Has he continued to climb during his whole life? No, he got involved in photography. Made his living from photography for mm-hmm. many years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot of, in a lot of ways, like especially Fred's name, especially Becky's name, and, and yours as well, is because we continued to. I mean, you guys continued to climb and produce guidebooks, and and maybe. Despite all the things that Ed Cooper did, you know, since he sort of stopped or moved moved away from it, we've he's been lost in history a little bit. But I I've definitely heard his name and seen his name on on a sense and and been curious about who he was or is. On the desert, he's done far more climbs than than Fred Becky or anybody else I can think of. Really? Yeah. All right. Yeah. I definitely need to give him a call. Yeah. The only other person would be Don Clanch. Don Clanch. Yeah. You ever heard that name? No. <laughs> Uh, Don Clanch was, he lives in California. He's friends with Ed Cooper. and Clanch was pretty nomadic, but had done some really hard pre-climbing. Clanch is pretty much the person that introduced me to Fred Becky. Oh, okay. Yeah, Clanch. Don Gordon was his name. (laughs) Or or, or they couldn't spell Clanch, so he changed his name. Oh, Legally, he changed his name legally. Yeah, he wanted his name to be pronounceable and spellable, and Uh so so it'd be... So Klontz, I mean... Klontz yeah. was his original name. I can't even imagine how to spell that. Yeah. I mean, K-L-A-U something. C-L-A-U-N-C-H. Okay. 
So he changes to Gordon just to just to stop causing problems. Right. <laughs> right. What a what a polite guy. <laughs> and he was, he was a very private person. Right. Um, who who else could you talk about in terms of of the folks that you climb with? Primarily those guys, or you know, yeah, Kalanch is the first person that I mm-hmm. really hooked up with. Castle Rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a lot of. That's where we went for a, for a practice. Mm-hmm. Then the scorns cheap became better and better known. But um, you know, it was pretty esoteric back in the fifties and sixties. Sure. Sure, yeah, just a handful of people, really. Right. Did you ever end up climbing with the, the Yosemite guys when they would come here, Mark Powell or any of those folks? No, he was a generation earlier. Oh, he was earlier than that, okay. Yeah. And Dolt, and, and some of those guys came down here and bagged a few impressive ascents mm-hmm. back in the day. Yeah, I met quite a few of those climbers, but mm-hmm. I didn't do any climbing with them. Mm-hmm. You know. And partly because I wasn't interested in climbing with other people. Mm-hmm. You know, just you know, my my climbing partners are Fred Becky and Ed Cooper. Sure, sure. And you know, Clance playing through town. I <laughs> I did a couple of climbs with him, but it wasn't. I didn't seek him out. Sure, sure. Because he he wasn't that well known. He wasn't a millionaire billionaire in those days. Right. <coughs> did he know. become one? Say it again. Did he become a millionaire? Oh, he's a billionaire now. Really, Clance? Yeah. Not Clance. I'm, yeah, Clance. I, I, I'm not sure what he's doing. He's probably still jumping fences and reading meters. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> I'm, th- I'm thinking of, yeah. Um, Were you thinking of Chouinard? <laughs> yeah, a handful of climbers back in those days that became very wealthy. Yeah, yeah. No, it was, it was interesting that a lot of those guys, yeah, went from those Yosemite days, went on to do something like that, you know. Yeah. It's pretty pretty wild. Uh, it started dividing. It started becoming climbers that went to Wall Street because they wanted to be seen, mm-hmm. and it, and then it became the Chenards and people that just wanted the adventure. So they went to South America, sure. and they, you know, earned the money to be able to travel. Right, right, yeah. And then obviously biting up. Yeah, obviously guys like Chenard then made some other pretty good decisions in terms of in terms of uh, business ideas and whatnot yeah. um, as well. I mean. He, he sort of managed to do both, like go and have the adventure and, and yeah, come all, out the other all side. All evolved out of this piton business. Yeah, exactly. The one out of his car, I, I, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. So, so let me ask you a few more questions, and then we'll be done. This might be difficult, and I, I think it's difficult because when I was looking at, you know, a list of some of the climbs that you've done over the years, there was so many of them, and maybe Fred Becky has this problem too of just having so many climbs, but. Are there anything, you know, any of these adventures that really stand out in your mind as, as ones that, that, you know, maybe were super important to you at the time over the years? It's the ones that made the most money. <laughs> the ones that made the most money to keep climbing? No, like, like the Moses Tooth. Okay. Things that were became popular in the media. Oh, sure, and that raised your profile. Yeah, that, that brought in the covers. And okay. Well, so tell, tell me a little bit about the Moses Tooth then. I don't know what to say. It's... Probably somebody's backyard climb now. <laughs> yeah. Well, what? What? I mean, let's put it in perspective. What? What year did that happen? I, I couldn't tell you. Okay. I don't think Fred was on the Moose's too. Okay. Was he? I don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll skip. Too that many one. years ago. Too many years ago. Yeah. Right. I've, I've got it in my in my books. But okay. Yeah. I'll just. I, I've got it all written down. I haven't lost it. Right. Right. But um. 
I couldn't tell you who. All right. Well, let me finish with this question then, and then we'll wrap it up. So when I came in here today, you asked me to sign sign your, your book, which has climbers that you've met for, it looks to me, I think it looks like it started in the 60s, at least some of the pages in there. And, and when? When? Uh, in the 60s, I think. Yeah. Yep. I yeah. I think the earliest ones I saw in there were from like 62, 63. Yeah. You also wrote all the... Then I worked for Harvard for 10 years. Okay. And I had it in storage. Okay. So for 10 years, I didn't get any signatures. Uh-huh. And it wasn't after I quit Harvard in 75, 85, I don't know, 85, that I got my stuff out of storage and got my sign-in book and had people start signing their names again. So yeah. what were you doing at Harvard? Sorry, we have to go well, on that I worked on air pollution lung study. Okay. You know, I, I did that because they paid me so much money I couldn't quit. You know, I just... I worked eight months out of the year. I had a month off of Christmas and three months during the summer. Right. And and I got paid the same amount when I was wasn't working as mm-hmm. when I was working. So, so it was were a great you, job. Great were you job. actually living in Cambridge up at Harvard, or no, were you doing I, it remotely? No, I I was doing field work. Okay. And I had to go back to Cambridge. Back to you know, every year you had to report in to to uh, Harvard. Okay. Sit through some seminars. Uh-huh. Took about two weeks. And then I was free for a couple months. Right. So air pressure on lungs. So we're talking about like altitude kind of, st- no, kind of stuff? No, it had or? to do with the, the, um, hydrocarbons and had to do with the pollutions that you get in the east compared to the pollutions that you get in the west. Okay. Which are totally different. Uh-huh. Because the source is different. Uh-huh. So we skipped this year. Did did you have a some sort of degree or background in this kind of research? How did you end up getting this the right work? people. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Just knew the right people. Doctor Paris mm-hmm. was had was a climber. Uh-huh. He'd done some climbing in Alaska in the early days in the twenties, and so on. And, and uh, I became friends with Doctor Ferris. And okay, it was just knowing the right people that got me the job. Right on. And this was something you were doing field work, so you could probably end up having time to climb still. Well, I've the job consisted of eight months out of the year. Right. The rest of the time, four months out of the year, is totally my own. Okay. And with money in your pocket and key to the car, <laughs> right? Excellent. Yeah. So that was it was a great job for a climber. Mm-hmm. Well, because I mean these these expeditions that you went on to Alaska or whatever, I mean those must have cost a little bit more money than climbing Desert Towers. Yeah. So yeah. that probably no. The, it was the, the job with Harvard that really paid my way for yeah. a long time. That's awesome. That's incredible. <laughs> uh, All right, the so right ba- place at the right time. <laughs> back to this book and. This idea, I mean, you, you you said, okay, I wrote these guidebooks to try to make some money, um, and yet I kind of see a trend that you are a historian. You're someone who's kept these records yeah, of all I these climbers you had. You know, the history of climbing, who mm-hmm. climbed what, and you know, as I got further and further into it, it became more and more appealing, mm-hmm. and uh, so I was more more interesting in who came before me, right? You know, and what had been climbed before me. So what do you think the legacy of this book is going to be? Oh, it sells for $200 a piece now. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Desert Rock. Oh, Desert Rock does, yeah, certainly. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? No, I'm talking about your archive. What's going to happen to your archive when oh. you're gone? Oh, I, I don't know. If somebody's cold, I guess they'll start a fire with them. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I hope I, not. I, I, I no certainly idea. hope not. I have no idea. You don't have any plans for it? No, I'm... My idea of writing is for my children. Okay. You know, 
Okay. I mean, the guy down the street's not going to be interested in reading about Eric Bjornstad's climbs. Actually, in Moab, I think the guy down the street might actually be interested well, in reading as, about Well, as we gain pop, you know, Moab is being found out. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, it's been found out. It's yeah. been found out, so. So you look back on your life of climbing. You, you've been climbing for, I mean, I'm going to guess 60 years or more? Or? Well, my first climbs were in 59. Okay. So, yeah, I'm going to do the quick math. Yeah. So, yeah, we're looking at nearly 60 years anyway. Yeah, most people don't live that long. <laughs> especially climbing, right? Yeah, especially right. climbing back in those days. Yeah, especially climbing. Yeah, it's amazing to pick up climbing magazines and see who has died last last issue. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. bet. That's not, that's a little but, bit more of it. Climbing but. is totally different. You're, you're doing a different type of climbing now. Sure, certainly. Yeah. So is there anything uh, you wish you'd done? That I haven't done? Yep. Oh, there's this one lady, this one girl that I was really interested in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. She, she always slipped my fingers. All right, I got you. Well. <laughs> but other than that, I can't, you know, I've eaten all the food that I ever wanted to eat. And, you know, no. <laughs> Any climbs out there that, that you wish you'd, you'd gotten to? They keep, keep saying, why didn't you go to Europe? And I didn't go to Europe because there's so much here. That right. hadn't been climbed. Certainly. You know, I hadn't been to so many of the ranges in the States. Uh, I really had no desire to go to Europe. Right. Because there was so much that hadn't been done here. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm satisfied. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it's just, um, yeah, just can't believe I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> well. And a lot of other people can't do <laughs> Right, exactly. So. Right. All right, well, thanks yeah. a lot, Eric. I think I'll okay. wrap up this part of the interview. And, uh, okay. I really appreciate your time. I, I realize that it's an sure. effort on your part. So I won't be going anyplace. So stop by any time. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. See you again. All right, folks, thanks for listening. And uh, I want to make a suggestion. If you are one of these desert rats, one of these tower collectors, these people that climb down there in Moab in that area quite a bit, consider stopping by the uh, Canyonlands Care Facility. It's attached to the Moab Regional Hospital just a few blocks from downtown Moab. Uh, Stop by. I think Eric would be delighted to have a quick chat with anybody that came in. You could sign his book. He's got this massive book of climbers that we talked about in the interview, dating all the way back to the 60s. I think it'd be uh, a real nice thing if you guys are interested in the history of Moab climbing and have used his books for years. Just drop by and say hi. All right, folks, if you want to help out this podcast, head over to normacast.com. Check out what's going on over there. Click on the Help Out tab. There's a bunch of things you can do to uh, help me continue this project. It's easy enough to do. And if you are down climbing in Moab or anywhere else, don't forget to check your knot. Come far, pilgrim. Feels like far. Were it worth the trouble? Huh? What trouble? 